welcome to Human Matters. I'm Deborah Stone, and this podcast explores the new insights that research brings into how we understand what it is to be human. We're coming to you from the studios of Australian Catholic University, a hub for humanities study. Human society is extraordinarily diverse. Wikipedia lists 251 ethnic groups, starting with Abkhazians and ending with Zulus, and more than 600 religious sects or spiritual traditions. The question of how we live together, despite our differences, has always been a challenge. But that challenge has increased as we live more closely. Until relatively recently, nations tended to define themselves through a homogeneous culture, a shared history, common language, and dominant religion. Many nations were either colonizers or colonies. But in the 20th century, we entered a post-colonial era with a somewhat confusing attitude to identity and belonging. On the one hand, indigenous and minority ethnic groups are reasserting their cultural identities and national independence. On the other, we live in a world that is more global, more mobile, and more multicultural than ever before. Our guest today is a sociologist whose work examines how we balance the universalism of multiculturalism with the particularism of nations. Dr. Rachel Busbridge is a lecturer in sociology at the Australian Catholic University and the author of Multicultural Politics of Recognition and Postcolonial Citizenship, Rethinking the Nation. Welcome to the program, Rachel. Hi, Deborah. Thank you. We're living in a globalised world with ever-increasing mobility and communications, yet we have more nations now than we did 100 years ago. Why is the nation so enduring? Um, I think the first thing that I would say to that is actually when we talk about the nation in the modern sense of how we understand what a nation to be, it's actually relatively quite new. So contrary to the idea of nations being ancient and enduring, which we tend to present them as, um, the idea of nations is actually only about a couple of hundred years old. Um, so it's a, a relatively new formation. It's very much intertwined with modernity. So that would be the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is that actually when we think about nations a hundred years ago, the world was rather different before the end of the Second World War. So um, rather than a world where you have different nation states, we had a world where there were empires and dominions. So it's really only post-1945 that we've come to an international order in which we do have different nation states. So again, that's even more recent. Um, and why do we have more nations these days? I think that's part um, and parcel of the strength of this idea of, of having a nation state. So it's something that's come into being post-World War II um, and it's attached to certain ideas of justice, certain ideas of identity and culture and belonging um, that have really taken hold. And it's come to be one of the main ways through which different groups are able to um, advocate and mobilise for, for rights, for recognition um, and for self-determination. With nations comes nationalism, and that's a, a very loaded term. Can you unpack it for us? Um, it's quite a loaded term. Um, the way in which I tend to approach um, the relationship between nations and nationalism is that the idea of nation in many ways really only makes sense 
within this idea of nationalism more broadly. At its base level, what nationalism says is that we live in a world of nations, that there are different nations, um, that they represent different types of people, that they're bordered and they kind of slot together on a world map like a jigsaw. Now, that's a, a core frame that you need to, to see the world as something being divided um, into nations. So at its core, I think nationalism, we can think of it in terms of just living in the world of nations, but that's not how we tend to talk about it in politics, in the mainstream. We tend to talk about nationalism as being an ideology um, that's to do with superiority or antagonism or constructions of who's our enemy and who's our friend. Um, and that's certainly part of it. But I think the other side that we've got to recall is that nationalism as an ideology isn't always a negative one. In fact, it can be a really positive, powerful and productive one. I mentioned before the period of decolonization. Now, this was clearly a big, powerful, um, progressive moment in the world. And that was really only possible because of this idea of nationalism, that there's something inherently wrong about having foreign um, occupiers and, and foreign parties coming in and controlling a space that's not their own, controlling a people that is not their people. Um, so it's got those multiple dimensions. It's always slightly precarious. It can slip into these really negative political expressions. Um, but at its core, it's a way of thinking about the world. It's a way of thinking about our identities, way of thinking about culture, way of thinking about the ways in which we belong. Do we need to reclaim the idea of the nation from that racist or xenophobic sort of nationalism? Um, yeah, absolutely. I believe so. Um, in, in the book um, with the very long title <laughs> that you mentioned, um, this is one thing that I argue. I think because we live in this world of nations, um, it's so normal and so natural to us. It's so natural that you have a passport and it has Australian on it. it it's, it's normal that you go down to the post office and there's a flag hanging off the side. It's normal that you get your stamps and it says Australia. And we don't think about these things. Um, so the thing that I want to say is that actually... We do tend to use this idea of nation in ways that reclaim it from these more negative forces, but we do it in a very mundane, everyday way. Um, and I think it's it's very much worthwhile to think about that in a more political sense. So as opposed to just being the background, I actually think well, when someone says, hey, wait a second, that over there, that's, that's, that's a bit racist. It's not quite Australian to go, well, that's something political. It's not exactly the same as a, a nationalist rally, but it does something um, in the political world. It does political work. And that's good work. That's important work. Yes, I work. think so. I think so. At its core, so the idea of nation is this idea that you have a, uh, a culturally homogenous group of people. And so in the ideology or we can call the discourse of nationalism, at its very core is that there's some sort of assumption of unity. Now, the social world is never like that. It's always incredibly diverse. It's always far more messy and far more complex um, than these type of ideologies make it out. Um, and one, thing's, one thing that I argue in my book as well is that part of the strength of nationalist ideology, of this idea that we all should be unified, that it's about a national unity, is precisely that we gloss over the contestations that happen within the category of a, na a nation or a national identity. So the example that I use is the Reclaim Australia rallies. So the Reclaim Australia rallies, these people went out on the street and they marched and they had a really clear sense of we are reclaiming Australia. 
But the Australia that they were reclaiming was quite different from the Australia that, say, commentators who were critical of Reclaim Australia were reclaiming. So it's a it's a cultural category and its its meaning is never a hundred it's never self-evident. People always have different views, different perspectives on what a nation is, what national identity is. Um, and very often our political sphere is about fighting out those different meanings, those different interpretations. So there's no such thing as a typical Australian. There's no such thing as an Australian um, whole, like, by and large. So there's an inherent tension between multiculturalism, between diversity and between the whole concept of a nation as being a unified thing that we're all part of. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so at, at its core, the idea of a nation is that you have some sort of cultural commonality and some sort of unity that binds um, communities together. Um, as I said, nations are never as unified as they they like to make out. Um, even the air, um, region in the world, Europe, which developed the whole idea of um, uh, ideology of nationalism has never been as nationally homogenous as, as they would like to imagine. Um, the task of creating nations in Europe involved battling out between different ethnic groups. So there's an inherent tension there. Yeah. Um, and how do we go about resolving that tension? Um, because of this presumption of unity, because um, uh, societies are always far more diverse, typically um, the ways in which diversity is dealt with is through management of the state. And so states manage diversity in different ways because even if you don't have actual objective unity, which you're never going to have, you still need to have some aspiration towards unity. Um, and look, there are different ways in which diversity can be managed as a way to kind of go about creating that unity. So there are more negative ways. Um, Something like the apartheid system in South Africa is a strong example of a way of trying to manage um, diversity um, to maintain some sort of illusion or notion of unity. Different um, policies like assimilation, like segregation are all in their own ways. Um, efforts to um, create a sense of unity, to foster that sense of unity. You can also do it in ways that are better than that. Um, so the American model of the melting pot, for instance, is quite different from those more negative ones in the sense that it gives a scope for difference within that unity, seen as unity is something that comes through these different ethnic groups coming together and melting together. Um, and Australian multiculturalism is also a really strong um, example of how you um, create unity through diversity. And in fact, one of the things that I would argue about Australia is that it's quite peculiar um, in the sense that we have multiculturalism as a national policy. Multiculturalism is not so much a mode of simply um, managing diversity, um, but it's also a powerful mode of defining the national identity. So we're quite unique here. I think we've got that balance of unity and diversity very much tied into how we see ourselves as a nation. In a strange way, our very identity as a nation, the thing that draws us together, 
is about our, our diversity, our multiculturalism. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that's one dimension of multiculturalism in Australia. I mean, it's an official state policy. It's an official state ideology since about 1973. Um, and on the one hand, since its inception, um, and it's kind of waxed and waned over the years, but at its core, multiculturalism has been about um, there's no such thing as a typical Australian, but we can still all be Australian. That's one side. Now, of course, it's not that these aspirations to a multicultural society are ever completely achieved. We've, we're a country that has a history of a white Australia policy um, and some of the ways or a number of the ways in which we've constructed multiculturalism in Australia are reflective of a continued dominance of Anglo-Celtic communities here in Australia. So um, on the one hand, we have been able to construct multiculturalism as being a national identity thing. Um, but on the other hand, because we've been quite successful at that, I think it's it's glossed over some of the ways in which um, white dominance continues to be very central in shaping people's understandings of Australian identity. Can you give me an example of that? Um, well, if you think about your imagined typical Australia, and I show this to my students, um, if you Google stereotypical Australian, you come up with a whole bunch of Google images and it's normally, so what, Paul Hogan in Crocodile Dundee, um, those tacky postcards you get, you know, like a Sheila says this and a bloke says that, um, and they're always white. And it's this image of a, a, a very kind of white, masculine, bush-driving, settler-style um, person, and then the woman, you know, the, the Aussie Sheila. This comes across, I mean, it comes across in many different ways in Australia. If you if you look at Australian television by and large, it's still largely white and these things are quite important in terms of how we see ourselves because that's how we represent it on the screen. Um, but it also comes across in how we understand and think about what colonial, uh, what multiculturalism is. And for a lot of people, multiculturalism is about having access to nice food. Oh, it's great. I can head down to Richmond and get myself some Vietnamese or I can go into Preston and get some really authentic Indian. Um, and it's kind of presented as a way of enriching a white Anglo experience. Um, so, yeah, there's always these kind of power relations and struggles that play out. And you've written about how popular culture can be valuable in softening up some of those um, mm. barriers. Do you want to tell us about that? Um, yeah, sure. So as I said, I think, I mean, it's easy to say that popular culture is not that significant because it's just TV and the things that, you know, magazines, those type of things. Um, but it is actually quite important and quite interesting in terms of looking at um, what it means for our society in terms of what it reflects and what it creates. Um, popular culture is the thing that we all watch. I mean, I don't know if we'll switch on the TV like we used to. Things are a little bit different now. Um, but it's popular culture is things that's there for everyone. Um, and in Australia, traditionally, um, and I think probably still through most of my lifetime, representations of ethnic minorities um, and Aboriginal peoples in popular culture has been highly limited, it's been highly restrictive, um, and it's very rarely been instances of people from different groups playing their own characters. And the example that I always use is, and I feel like my age is showing now because it's it's quite old and my students look at me blankly, um, 
Con the Fruiterer. So that Con the Fruiterer character, which was, what's his name? Fast Forward? Was it Fast yeah, Forward to the it show? It was Fast Forward, that's right. Um, yeah, so that's a, a stereotype of Greek-Italian Mediterranean stereotype played by an Anglo character. And that's it, it, if you look back at those old clips, they're a little bit offensive. <laughs> um, but you had after this, so this is late 80s, um, you started to have shows that were produced by Greek and Italian people for themselves. Probably the most prominent of that would have been Acropolis now. Mm-hmm. now something and Wogs like, Out of Work Yeah, is the same team, yep, yes. Yep. So Wogs Out of Work is the theatre piece, um, mm-hmm. Acropolis now is being the television show. Um, this was quite significant in that it gave a, a chance for Greek and Italian um, actors to play themselves and to represent themselves to their own community. Um, Perhaps more recently, and this is another example that I look at in the book, um, if we think about representations of Muslims and Arab people, um, again, this has been really kind of reductive in Australian society. But what we've seen more recently is with shows like Salam Cafe and Legally Brown, um, Walid Ali getting a, a gold logie, that you start to have more representation of actual Muslims talking to Muslims talking to non-Muslim Australians about things that matter to them. And I think that's quite important. If television is a, a mirror for the nation, it's it's important to see that reflected back in ways which are more um, more accurately reflect what our society is, the, the diversity of Australian society. If we've got a situation where um, our nations are diverse and they treat every culture as equally valid, mm-hmm. Where do Indigenous people come into that? How can we give Indigenous people a special status at the same time as saying, well, everybody is equal? Um, Well, I think um, you obviously have to give Indigenous people a special status. Um, In the scholarship on multiculturalism and um, multicultural liberalism, political theory, um, a number of the um, philosophers make a key distinction between immigrant groups and Indigenous groups. Um, Immigrant groups are those that come to a country, um, so there's an element of it with asylum seekers and refugees it's not always 100% voluntary migration's complex but by and large immigrants come to join a particular society um, that's very different to indigenous peoples who are are forced into a society by virtue of occupation by virtue of invasion by virtue of being incorporated into a settler state that they don't want Um, So Indigenous peoples have to have a special status. There's no question about that because their circumstances are entirely different. Um, But again, the question is, what should that special status be? Um, We do give tacit um, acknowledgement to Indigenous people's special status here in Australia. Um, We've had a a policy, an official policy of self-determination since the late 70s. Um, But how that plays out in practice is obviously quite different Um, and it's also a matter of what Indigenous peoples themselves actually want and in this we can come back to this idea of nationalism because you know a pan-Aboriginal nationalism is really about self-determination it's about claiming some territorial autonomy Um, so yeah absolutely they need to have a special status Um, but there are other complex issues that come into what that special status might entail. One of the ways we sometimes um, man the barricades on the question of what is Australian identity is by deciding that certain behaviours or values are 
un-Australian. How do we decide what's un-Australian and is the term inherently problematic? Um, the ways in which it's used by and large and we tend to interpret it are quite problematic. When someone says that something is un-Australian, they're doing a couple of things. Um, the main thing that they are doing is they're staking a claim of belonging. So they're saying, well, I belong and you don't belong. Because if I can say that's un-Australian, then clearly I'm Australian. So I'm in some kind of more powerful position. Um, so it's about belonging. And the thing is, this can be done in highly problematic ways, as we can see with Reclaim Australia, um, with groups like the United Patriots Front and these really far-right groups, um, where they will claim that certain ethnic groups, and typically now it's Muslims, are un-Australian. So they don't have Australian values or they don't follow Australian expectations. Um, and sadly, this is something which is kind of present across mainstream discourse. Politicians will appeal to these ideas. Um, but at the same time, because, like I said, national identity is a side of contestation, you can also use un-Australian in different ways. Um, so people who are counter-protest to reclaim Australian rallies and say racism, that's un-Australian. That's a claim of what Australian is, and that's a far more positive, progressive one. Um, I don't know if you've seen the posters around um, campus here at ACU. They were at, they're a few years old now, but the uh, um, those real Australians say welcome posters. Um, those are important claims about labelling things as un-Australian, um, but they do, I would say, better things in society, that they, they open up space for difference and they're far more positive. So I think, yes, by and large, this claim of un-Australian can be really pro um, problematic, um, but there's also scope to resist against it using that same language. So just as we can reclaim the idea of the nation, we can reclaim the idea of what is an Australian mm. value or an un-Australian value. Yeah. And multiculturalism is really important there. Um, and it's testament to how naturalised that ideology is in our society that people can say, well, we're diverse, or can say, wait, who are you to say who should come here or not? You, you're an immigrant yourself. Like, these are good things, mm. in my view. Classically, John Lennon wanted us to imagine no countries, nothing to kill or die for, no religion too. That idealism of internationalism seems to have died. Do you think an internationalism remains the ideal or do you think that there's a positive aspect of cultural and national diversity? The first thing I'd say to that is internationalism is still an idea which is very much framed by an idea of nation and by the discourse of nationalism, like you can't have an international without having the national. Um, and that's just a little kind of point of how every day our language about nation is and how we kind of tend to forget how we're creating a world of nations when we speak about it. Um, look, there was a period particularly after um, the end of the Cold War, so 1980s, 1990s, um, where a lot of people, um, scholars, commentators, thought, oh, the time of nationalism is over. You know, Cold War's ended. We don't need these type of, um, of um, nationalist frameworks anymore and the international's the way to go. They were obviously not right. The 1990s saw some really negative, really violent recurrences of nationalist sentiment erupt in different places like Rwanda and the Balkans. Um, but by and large, I think one thing that these arguments missed was just how important 
ideas of nation are to everyday ordinary people. Um, nation having a national identity is something that brings a lot of joy, that brings a lot of meaning to different people's lives. Um, and in a time of globalization, I think we could say we're in a time of hyper globalization now. Um, something that national identity does is it provides people with a, a cultural tether. It provides you some way to slot yourself into the world, that you have a place in the world. I'm Australian, that means I have this or I have that. Um, so I think, look, I think that the ideas of internationalism are really quite beautiful. This overarching, we're all humans and we can put our differences aside. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily has to be exclusive of a more national way of understanding identity. Um, having a national identity allows people to participate in global politics in a way that having an international identity doesn't really, because um, it tethers you to a place, it tethers you to, to what's going on. Um, the other side of that, I think if we look at you know, the ravages of global capitalism, which is highly international, um, the international in itself isn't necessarily a space of progress, of, um, of justice. It, it can be quite um, negative and quite destructive. Um, so I think there are different dimensions there. I think we need a, a sense of of both. And I, I do think one of the good things about nationalism um, as a an overarching structure, not as a, a negative ideology, but a way of thinking about the world as in nations, um, is that allows people to engage and participate in the international, particularly when they feel alienated or they might feel marginalised or they don't feel like they have a lot of power. We all need families and tribes and maybe nations too. Dr. Rachel Busbridge, thank you for being part of Human Matters today. Thank you. Thanks too to producers James Mitchell and Trey Karunaratna, both media production students here at the Australian Catholic University. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to review it and share it so other people can find it. I'm Deborah Stone, and you've been listening to Human Matters. Human Matters.